Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is The Guardian. What looks like a punk can mate with itself, but probably shouldn't, and can live without its own body. Welcome to Look At Me, I'm Ray Johnston. When it comes to Australian native animals, everyone thinks about koalas and kangaroos and drop bears, but what about the creepy ones, the deep sea alien ones, the ones we might not have even heard of? That's what we're here to talk about with Chris McCormack, my co-host, who is from Remember the Wild. Hey, Chris. Hello. So, uh, yeah, something weird looking, <laughs> something that can mate with itself. Any idea what we're talking about, Ray? Yeah, no, absolutely not. This is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard of, and I'm certain you are tricking me somehow. Well, here's a photo. That's an alien, Chris. <laughs> Look at this. Okay, so this looks like a, a it looks like an underwater caterpillar with tendrils coming off it, all blue and yellow, and it looks like it's got horns. And I am so confused by this. Is this underwater? This is underwater. Yes. Yeah, this is an underwater alien sort of creature. It's funny how many animals that live underwater just look like they're from another planet entirely. This is no exception. I guess I imagine they probably think the same of us, right? Like, what the hell is that? (laughs) (laughs) Which is why every time we're in the ocean, they're like, get out. How many ways can we tell you to get out? We're going to sting you. We're going to bite you. We're going to drive you onto the shore. You're just not listening to us. Are these things dangerous? Uh, Well, some of them are more dangerous than others, but generally speaking, they're they're pretty harmless to humans. But look, you wouldn't want to go eating them, that's for sure. (laughs) We're not talking about a single species today. We're talking about a group of species. Uh, Here's another one. Oh, wow. This one looks like it's almost a punk. It's bright purple with those bright orange spikes coming off it. But the spikes look really soft. It's like a gentle undersea punk slug situation. (laughs) Slug. Slug. It is. It's a sea slug, Um, is it? It is a sea slug, Ray. But those spiky things on its back, what do you think they are? I would guess, well, it kind of looks like an anemone, you know, with the clownfish swimming through it, getting shocked. So I can imagine that it might be something that maybe contains poison or... I don't know, has the ability to make whatever touches it feel something. 
Or even just a warning system to be like, hey, can you maybe not eat me, please? Well, you're, you're sort of you're, you're sort of not actually wrong because some of them can do that. Um, <laughs> sort of not actually wrong is not the compliment you think it is, Chris. Oh. <laughs> okay. Well, these soft kind of uh, spiky things going down the back of this sea slug are its lungs. Oh, wow. That's super cool. So that's how it breathes. Yeah. And so... Uh, its its lungs are outside its body. Its branchi, its branchia, are outside its body, which means they are naked. <laughs> they are exposed. Therefore, it is a nudie brank. It's a nudie slug with external lungs. This is amazing. I can imagine that this would be a pretty unique feature. It's not really safe to have your organs hanging out outside your body, right? <laughs> it. It's certainly counterintuitive to have your vital organs kind of trailing along behind you in a really colourful, flashy show of, hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. I got I got streamer lungs. Don't touch them, please. <laughs> Some of them can actually pull them back into their body. Um, They're retractable lungs. Yeah, retractable lungs, you know, kind of dangle them out every now and again, <laughs> which if that's happening to you at home, you call triple zero. Uh <laughs> That's not that's that's okay for nudie brank. That's not okay for most other species. So you said nudie brank. They're called a nudie brank. Uh, most of the ones that you're looking at, you'll be able to see that they've got this often like quite a feathery, colourful cluster of um, exposed, so naked gills on their backs. So Ray, this is Nicole Mertens from the Victorian National Parks Association, and Nicole absolutely is obsessed with sea slugs and nudie branks and she's full of outstanding and kind of weird knowledge on these creatures. There are a couple of major types of nudie branks. Um, so there's your kind of, um, there's your dorids, which are generally kind of like an oval shape with the feathery gills on the back. So there's another group uh, called the aelids and they are... Again, they're like a very sluggy body type, so they're a long, skinny body type usually, but they have on the back, um, instead of kind of these feathery gills, they've got these things called serrata. Um, they kind of just look like tentacles um, and they can come in a lot of different shapes. Some of them are kind of bubbly and round. Others are like quite long and tendril-like. Um, and they tend to function both as kind of something that the slug can breathe through, but also it's where they store their digestive glands. So it's kind of like a feeding and a, and a breathing thing. It's a lung stomach. <laughs> yeah. Different ways that nature has managed to, to force these slugs to deal with the well, quite a harsh environment, I suppose, like the marine environment. It's, you know, especially if you're a soft-bodied slug. Um, yeah, it seems to have, have created some pressure to, to take on some pretty weird shapes. What is their environment like? What is their life like? Well, I guess when you consider, you know, they're living in the ocean and, and some of them are living in the intertidal zone, some of them are living deeper down in rocky reefs and things like that. And, you know, it's it can be, you know, they can be living under a lot of pressure down in the ocean. In the intertidal zone, they're exposed to lots of changes in in uh, salinity and, and temperature on a daily basis. So it's a dynamic, harsh world. And there's so many different species of these animals out there and we're only really starting to to uncover some of their mysteries because they, they really are alien-like to us and, and 
And I'll be honest, they're sort of sci-fi, supernatural kind of creatures, these animals. And one thing we do know is that they can eat things with stinging cells like anemones that you mentioned earlier, Ray, and use them as weapons to protect themselves. One thing that's really cool about a lot of the sea slug species, so nudibranchs and others, is that they do this thing where they can actually hold on to the stinging cells that they've eaten. Uh, They can digest those cells, they can take them into their body, they can go and put them in the tips of their serratus, those tentacle things on their back, and they will remain active and stinging to provide defence for the sea slug. I knew it. I knew they were going to be stingy when you looked at them. There was just something about them that was like, if you touch me, you're in trouble. But not not originally stingy. That's what I love about it. As I, I love that oh, these are my lungs. These serrata are my spiky back lungs um, that are naked, of course. And I'm going to eat some stingy cells from stingy things that we know are stingy, like jellyfish and anemones. And then I'm somehow going to ingest those stingy cells and transport them to the tips of my naked back spiky lungs and then if you try to touch me my naked lungs are gonna mess you up i just imagine the first nudibranch to ever do this and just go into a space go and touch touch my gills touch my gills see what happens see what happens (laughs) (laughs) how did you do that So why don't we know much about these animals? Surely there are a lot of people who'd be interested in researching them. They're interesting, right? Yeah, they are really interesting, but I guess they're not always living right before our eyes. They're living in uh, rock pools and they're living under the sea. And so, funnily enough, one of the communities most familiar with them are scuba divers who love to photograph them and sometimes call them the butterflies of the sea because they're, of course, so beautiful looking. And so the Victoria National Parks Association is partnering with the scuba diving community in Victoria to help monitor these many, many species of nudibranchs because they are actually great bioindicators. They tell us a lot about environmental change because they have rapid life cycles oh. and quite specific food requirements. Yeah, so they are really important. They're amazing animals. And, uh, yeah, we, we're learning more and more. Quite recently, um, another another bunch of sea slugs, the the sap sucking sea slugs, um, which just get their name because they they suck the sap out of the algae cells. These sap sucking sea slugs um, can also harvest the the chloroplast in algae, so like the the, the stuff that photosynthesizes for the algae and give the algae the energy. So there's a bunch of these sea slugs that they think can actually survive for quite a long time without eating because they are themselves still benefiting from those photosynthetic chloroplasts. They've become plants. Yep. I'm just going to say it. I think these animals are the next major issue for humanity to deal with. They are absorbing (laughs) the powers of everything around them and they're going to come knocking at some point and all of a sudden they're going to, I don't know, absorb your ability to do amazing podcasts, Ray, and then you'll be out of a job and the sea slugs (laughs) will be doing everything. (laughs) It's pretty incredible. 
They're going to come knocking on our doors and go, hey, we've seen this giant garbage island you've made in the middle of the ocean. We'd like you to stop that immediately or we're going to take you over and rule the world. Thank you very much. Well, you think that's weird, Ray. You know, they can take the power of plants. Uh, But that's not even the weirdest thing. We're still just dabbling in the shallows of these oceanic weirdos. So here is where things get truly, truly interesting. Just recently, a paper came out where one of these sap-sucking sea slugs was observed in the lab, or multiple individuals observed in the lab, um, dropping their bodies in the way that, like, a, a lizard can drop a tail. Hang on, so what's left once you drop the body of a slug? Basically the head. And, and they are, they're, they're quite simple animals, but they do still have things like stomachs and hearts and everything. And the stomach and the heart, everything gets ejected. It's just the head of the slug. What? Um, the researchers found that these guys were still able to kind of do their own thing. Some of them even ate. But what they found is that, yeah, after a while, like, the, the body started growing back. The head, so the head of the slug um, grew its own body back and a lot of them were fine. But they're eating when they have no stomach. And how are they breathing? I don't understand, Nicole. <laughs> Make me understand. The theory is that perhaps this is a species that is actually being, um, benefiting from the, the whole stealing the, the algal chloroplast and being able to do the photosynthesis, um, so surviving that way. And they think it might have something to do with either a mechanism to us to escape if they're say like entangled in something so caught in some like caught in their food caught in some algae um because then you can just drop the the heavy old body and, and go about your business um or they do get parasites and i guess the idea is that if you are if you're a slug crawling along and you've just got like parasites for days and you can't really move and it's all it's all pretty sad they can just go yep just gonna just gonna drop that body and get a new one these nudie pranks, they're so incredible. Like, the fact that they're able to stay alive with just a head. Like, they've just got a head. Like, you, we were just talking about how they've got their lungs and their stomach and these, you know, tendrils outside of their body. It, being able to stay alive being just a head, it, it defies all odds. I feel kind of basic as a human, when I learn about species like this, I'm like, wow, I wish I could just <laughs> get the power from things I eat. I accidentally, <laughs> I accidentally injected myself with swan blood once and I didn't get any powers from that. What? Yeah. Chris, <laughs> no, this is a whole other story, but you do need to tell me this now. You can't just drop info like oh, that. I had a syringe of swan blood and I accidentally stabbed myself with it. <laughs> What were you doing with swan blood in a syringe? Oh, you know, we all have hobbies, Ray. No, come on. You, you, <laughs> this is not your hobby. I I will not accept this. No, no, look, it was back, it was during my master's research and I was working on black swans and we'd have to take a bit of blood for DNA sample and because we were measuring their corticosteroid levels, their stress hormones. And, um, yeah, I, I sort of wasn't, I don't know, just a moment of not paying attention, and my <laughs> I stabbed myself in the leg, and just put a little bit of, a little bit of, really connected with the swan. I guess. <laughs> now you can communicate telepathically with swans. They're all your friends. Yes, <laughs> and I have a, a craving, an intense craving for white bread. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, okay, that's a that's a more relaxing version than what I immediately conjured up yeah. in my brain. But yeah, no, don't try that one at home, friends. Well, Ray, no episode of Look at Me would be complete without entering our favourite segment, which is how weird is the sex for this group of animals? Oh, wow. I can only imagine. And are they doing it when they're just heads? I I don't, like, I have so many questions (laughs) that I don't really want to know the answers to, but I'm going to ask anyway and then possibly have nightmares about. I have been having nightmares about some of the animals in our previous episodes. So, look, just lay it on me. One of the most interesting things about nudibranch and sea slug reproduction to me is the fact that uh, they are male and female. They are hermaphroditic. But one of the issues with being a hermaphroditic species, Ray, is self-fertilisation, which sounds really dirty. It just means it sounds rather convenient, really. It, it can be, but you do want to you do want to swap your genes around with other sea slugs because you do want to get that genetic diversity. And you want to have a population that is, you know, got that genetic capacity to respond to changes and adapt in, in your environment. Um, I can tell you right now that if I was self fertilizing and just cloning myself repeatedly, uh, my population would crash as soon as any kind of stress or issue came up. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> you'd get to avoid dating, though. So that seems like a plus. Yes, and so they've kind of got a bunch of different options um, at their disposal. Sea slugs seem to have this thing where, um, you know, they have a like this thing, these things called genital apertures, and they'll have a male aperture and a female aperture. Um, ba- basically, yeah, kind of just little pockets where the um, yeah where the sex organs are. And they have them on the right side of the body, so on one side of the body, and every slug has that on that one side of the body. So they basically, if they want to mate with another sea slug, they kind of have to, like, line up top and tail with each other and, and dock into the different, yeah, the, the, the alternate um, aperture. Sorry, dock? <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> Basically, yeah, they'll line up, then they might take turns, like, swapping the, the, the sperm into the female aperture. Sometimes they kind of form these almost, like, conga lines of slugs where they're all kind of just, like, joining up with each other. It seems to be rather convenient. Uh, you, you, you would never be stuck for a mate, I suppose, because you could do it with anyone from your species, yeah. really. there's a lot of options, but I guess you also face a lot of rejection, maybe? Oh. Or maybe they don't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Who can tell? Have we asked them? Literally anyone's a viable partner and I'm alone. That's <laughs> oh, no. Nudie sex is great. There's a species, a couple of species, that um, instead of doing the, the aperture line-up thing, they will stab their penises into the the bodies of another slug. Is that consensual or is it sort of... Is this, it sounds quite violent. Yeah, look, it's... Um, I, look, I can't speak to how consensual that is. Well, anyway, the slugs are finding each other and this is, this is happening. There is one species that, for whatever reason... Um, and again, it's one of these things where this happens and everyone goes, hmm, that's interesting. Not really sure why, though. There's this one species that does the, the stabbing thing that always stabs their partner in the head. Now, we're not really sure why, but they do. 
Yeah, that's awful. That's awful behaviour from these slugs. Look, I've, I've admired them up until this point. And now I'm starting to question that admiration. Never have heroes, I think, <laughs> the, the moral of this episode is. Yeah, Ray, look, Nudie Brank are a lot. But before, you know, you're completely disillusioned with this group of animals. I'm Robert Byrne commonly known as Bob. I'm a builder. And I look at myself as a builder, as a carpenter, not as an expert on sea slugs. That was a hobby, and just a hobby. It never paid me a cent. In fact, it cost me a fortune. Bob is one of Australia's foremost experts in sea slugs and nudie brank. He spent his entire life looking for these animals, identifying these animals. I realised that there were more than one sort of shell and I became a shell collector as a young adolescent. What happened next? I found something. Took it to a meeting of the shell club in Melbourne. Spoke to... Hope McPherson, who was the curator of shells at the museum, and said, what's this? And she said, I don't know, but it might be this. But if it is, it hasn't been seen since 1905. I thought, hmm, all right, there must be other things around. So I started to look, and that was it. I've been hooked on sea slugs ever since. Bob is now in his 80s. Unlike a lot of the other experts in their field that we tend to talk about, Ray, Bob isn't an academic. He, he, he didn't study uh, marine biology or anything like that at university. He's a, he's a builder. Yet he has had an enormous contribution to our understanding of these animals. So there's shell clubs I've just discovered, thanks to Bob, which is an incredible concept because I've always thought of that as such a solitary activity. You just wander along, collect shells on the beach, bring them home, maybe make a necklace out of them. I didn't know people met and talked about the things that washed up on beaches together. He does talk about, you know, they really struggle to get young members nowadays and he, he actually noticed as soon as TV became common, the membership, it just went pew. So, you know, because people were getting their interests elsewhere. Um, so when Bob was starting out, uh, there was hardly anyone in the world that that really was interested in sea slugs and nudibranchs. And, you know, it's not like today where lots of people love to go out and take photos of them, you know, divers, snorkelers or people, you know, just walking along the beach if they see them in rock pools. It, was, it wasn't like that for Bob. And so he really had to dive headfirst into this kind of, obscure academic realm in order to to get anywhere and to to gather knowledge on these animals. You know, and one of the the most amazing examples of this is that uh you know, as a teenager really, he had these international academic pen pals in Brazil and Japan and Europe who were the handful of people globally who were working on sea slugs and he was writing to them and they were sending him papers and he was sending them stuff 1959 some Japanese scientists found little slugs that had a, like a little cockle shell or a little mussel shell on the back, but it had a snail inside. Now, all bivalves, so your mussels, your cockles, your clams, etc., they're all two shells, but they don't have a head that sticks out. They don't have a, a real foot 
that crawls along. They don't have teeth in the head to be able to manipulate and extract the food. So what did I do? Early in January or February 1960, the Shell Club had a field trip down to Point Danger at Torquay. I had no idea about these things, but I looked and looked and looked and looked. Then I found that one, and I found that one crawling in my bucket. It's, it's a pretty amazing story of a regular uh, citizen getting involved in science um, through a completely different pathway to what we're, we're used to. When I found those, I knew that they were important in the malacological world because they were bivalves with a gastropod animal. I approached uh, Hope McPherson at the museum in Melbourne and I told her I had more than one species and more than one genus. And I said, I want to describe them. And she said, righto. And we did. With her help, she was very, very good, very careful. And the paper was submitted to Nature, which is a pretty big deal. And my paper came out in that as the lead article, describing a new genus and two new species. I think at this point we need to redefine what is and isn't an academic. Because honestly, (laughs) with the amount of papers that he's having published and just the amount of animals that he's describing personally, surely there's some sort of honorary accolade or distinction that he could be given for the work that he's done in this field. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm 30 years old, Ray, and I've only just published my first paper and I'm by no means a high achiever in that space. But uh, I just imagine the, you know, uh, if there's any undergraduate students listening to this, Bob, <laughs> your age and younger, has published <laughs> in Nature. Um, don't be dismayed. Yeah. Be inspired. That's I think it's I'll inspiring say. for those of us out there that haven't pursued you know, academia in any way, that we can still be involved in science and we can still do important work in these spaces while also, I don't know, being a carpenter. I just went on collecting, finding more and more and more, not of those necessarily, but of other things. Now, on that page there... Trinchusia viridiana, I named that one. But that one there is species RB1. RB is me, Robert Byrne, and that's my first species in that genus that hasn't been named. Why haven't you named them? I've got to earn a crust. I've got to earn a crust to live. You've got other stuff to do is what you're saying. I'm not a malacologist. Let's just go through and start naming them, I think, Bob. (laughs) I could give them names like that, but it's you've got to go through the pro forma of naming it. You've got to do it properly. Is there an emotional quality in it for you when you do look at them or when you think about all, all the time that you've spent on them? I think I have not wasted a minute because they're so beautiful, because I understand them and lots of people get a lot of enjoyment from them. They've given you a lot of happy... Happy years. A great deal of great and deep happiness. And I will continue to do so. Oh, 
Oh, that's so lovely to hear. Robert Byrne there, a builder and long-time devotee of the nudibranch. I hope you enjoyed learning all about the weird and wonderful world of nudibranchs today. Look at Me is supported by the Australian Conservation Foundation. It's hosted by me, Ray Johnston, on Darug Country, and Chris McCormack on Jarjarwarung Country. It's also produced by Chris from Remember the Wild and Jane Lee and Camilla Hannan at Guardian Australia. Camilla also did the sound design. This is our final episode for season two of Look at Me. Thank you so much for listening. If you're not done just yet, you can go back and listen to season one of the show, which featured Benjamin Law, wherever you are listening to this podcast. See you again soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.